Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Endings are hard. It's hard to come to the end because coming to the end means saying goodbye, and it's hard to say goodbye. It's hard to say goodbyes when those goodbyes are permanent. It's the reason why oftentimes at funerals you find yourself with this urge to say something, to, to speak some final word that brings closure or finality to a relationship. Even when we're saying goodbye and we intend to see one another again, sometimes you feel that need to say something, or to put a final point on it. The first time that you drop off your child at school and say goodbye, it feels like a moment that needs to be marked with some sort of utterance. You need to speak in that moment. And that keeps happening as you drop them off as they grow up. Can you remember back far enough to the first time you were dropped off at school, left to your own devices by your parents to, to find your way in the world? And what were the words of goodbye that your mom or your dad spoke to you? What did they say to you? Maybe... Your mom dropped you off at school and said, have a good time. Enjoy yourself. This will be wonderful. Don't worry. Gave you lots of reassurance. If that happened to you, then you were probably one of the good kids. A lot of us, what we heard when we got dropped off for the first time was something like, now behave yourself. Right? Don't do anything to disgrace yourself or the family because our parents knew us a little better maybe than your parents knew you. But those words of goodbye sometimes wrapped up some, some expression of hope, sometimes an expression of warning as well as we look into the future because that's the kind of thing we feel the urge to say at these moments of parting, or to express some kind of a wish for the other person, some kind of a, a, a hope or, or a warning for what will happen after we've parted ways. And the epistles of the apostles are, are, are no different. As they write their letters to the churches, oftentimes they end with a benediction. They end with a final word to the people. They don't just trail off, but, but all but a few of them end with some kind of a special goodbye, some kind of a special word, uh, which we call a benediction, an ending, a final point on the message that's already been made. A benediction literally from the Latin is like a, a good saying or, or to say something well. Right? A benediction. So some sort of a, a good hope that is being expressed to the audience. Now, you feel this urge when you've written an epistle to the church and you've called them out for whatever it is they needed to be called out for. You've instructed them on doctrine. And now it's time for the epistle to end. You're at the, the end of your parchment. You feel like you've really got to say something impactful right then. You feel that way when you reach the end of a, a series of sermons preached on an epistle as well. I can tell you the idea that we are leaving behind the book of Hebrews has weighed heavily on me. I've had conversations with Lori where I've said, well, um, I feel like having gone through the book of Hebrews should have changed everything. Like, like we should none of us be able to look at the Bible the same way again. I certainly should never be able to look at things the same way again. But my fear is that once we've left it behind, we'll forget. And so I keep asking myself, well, what are the things we need to remember? 
What are the things we need to review before we move on? What are the things we mustn't leave the book of Hebrews without having learned? Interestingly enough, when you come to this benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews, there's a similar kind of concern expressed because you don't just get a, a well-wishing, you don't just get a blessing, you also get a blessing that has woven into it kind of the core of the message of the book of Hebrews. So as you hear these words of benediction spoken by the author of Hebrews, a blessing invoking the, the word of God to, to speak into your life, also hear the review, as it were, of the important things that he's taught us along the way. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That is a benediction. It's one of the most beautiful benedictions that you'll find in the New Testament. It's not an accident that our worship services are structured in a certain way, and they always end the same way. They end with a benediction. At the end of every worship service at Grace, you receive this blessing from the Lord that is spoken into your life, and it's addressed to you. It's different from a doxology. Right? There's a doxology as well. If you look in the back of your order of worship, if you preview the future, you peer into your, your future, you'll see that there will be a doxology, and after the doxology will come the benediction. Well, the doxology is the giving of praise or glory to God. We lift our voices glorifying him in the doxology. It's focused and addressed on God. The benediction has a different focus. It is focused on you. Words spoken to you, words of blessing that are given to you. That's what a benediction is. And so you can see that in our worship, we begin our worship hearing from God. The voice of God calls us into this place to worship Him. And as we prepare to depart, He speaks to us these words of blessing at the end. That's what a benediction is. That's what it's for. It's to speak to us before we go out. To bless us. To orient us before we go out. And here, in this benediction, we are reminded of all the things that we've seen leading up to it. As it were, we're recapitulating the entire service of the book of Hebrews that's gone before. We learn a number of things. The first one is this, that God made the history of the world into a history of redemption. If you remember the opening of the book of Hebrews way back in the spring, when we looked at Hebrews 1, we were told that it used to be that God spoke to us through prophets. He spoke to us in a variety of different ways. But now, in these last days, it's all changed. Now he speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate revelation of God to us. Everything has changed. All of history, in other words, has reached its high point, its culmination. But there's a reason why, even now, even in this post-Christian age, we divide all of human history at a certain point, a certain pinpoint on the timeline. We say everything that, that happened before this happened B.C., before Christ, and everything afterwards happened Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. 
Interestingly, historians have, have moved away from this. Now, uh, if you read any, any modern history, you'll see that, that, that prior to a certain moment, everything was before the Common Era, BCE. And then at a certain point, we entered something called the Common Era, and then everything became CE instead of AD. I don't know what it was that happened that inaugurated this Common Era. It's a mystery. Historians, no doubt, will struggle with the origins of this, but I think it might still buried in itself, have a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, the event that was the high point of human history. God, through Christ, made all of our history one history, a history of his coming, a history of his salvation, a history of redemption. And at the beginning of the benediction, you get an intimation of this. Now may the God of peace, he says. Now may the God of peace, the God who speaks to you, the God who blesses you, this is the God of peace. This is a Christian coinage. This way of referring to God as a God of peace is something that Christians began to do, and you see it throughout the New Testament. Not just may the peace of God fill you, but may the God of peace. In many benedictions, you'll find this idea of God as the God of peace. In uh, Romans 15.33, you have sort of the most stripped-down, efficient version of this sentiment. Uh, Romans 15.33, right at the end there, says, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's pretty succinct. But if you think about it, the God of peace sounds very appealing to us because peace is something a lot of us are, are longing for, searching for. But the kind of peace that these authors have in mind maybe isn't the kind of peace that we think. When I think about uh, the way in which religion or spirituality might give me peace in life, I think of it as, uh, it could be, you know, contentment. It'd be ease, like the, the absence of stress. You can feel peaceful, sort of calm and meditative peace. That's not the kind of peace this God of peace brings. This God of peace brings an end of conflict. But the peace that they have in mind is literally the peace that God the peacemaker makes between himself and us that we as children of wrath were in conflict with him, and he came and made peace. He's the God of peace. He's the one who made peace between us. That is the peace that we celebrate. That is the peace that we long for. It's a better peace than all the other pieces that we find ourselves looking for in life. It is better to be at peace with God. It is better to have his wrath assuaged and have your sins atoned for than it is to be really relaxed sometimes. This is a more profound kind of peace. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus bless you. This may surprise you, but in the, the book of Hebrews, although there are allusions made, there are indirect references made to the resurrection of Jesus and to the resurrection of the dead, this is actually the very first time in the book of Hebrews that Jesus' resurrection is directly mentioned. The very first time in all the ground that we've covered and all of the, the richness of Jesus' ministry that we've looked at and unpacked, this is the very first time that the author of Hebrews has alluded to this kind of central fact that Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. And our text translates this, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, but a more literal, maybe wooden way, of translating it would be to say that, that he uh, led out from the dead our Lord Jesus, that he led him out, that God led Jesus 
out from the dead. Which is a significant way of thinking about it because of the next phrase in the benediction. Who brought again or led out from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. But if you think about it, what is it that shepherds do? Where flocks are concerned, they lead them. They lead them. Now this idea of Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep is an interesting one, and, and it unpacks a lot of the ground that we covered in Hebrews having to do with Jesus' role as mediator of the new covenant. Although you wouldn't think so looking at it at first. right? If I think about Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, I immediately think of Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. Right? I hear, think of Jesus talking about uh, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Jesus himself thinks of himself as a shepherd. And so this is the way that we tend to, to look at, let's say, Jesus' literally pastoral role, because pastors and shepherds are the same thing. And so we think of this as something Jesus has acquired for himself, a, a title that he's given to himself. He's a shepherd. Maybe he was thinking about his birth and how cool it was that shepherds showed up to celebrate it, and he always liked shepherds. And, and hey, David, he was a shepherd, right? And so this shepherd thing has just been really significant. But there's actually a deeper significance, the idea that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, because there was another shepherd of the sheep, not David, not the shepherds who showed up, but Moses. Moses, the shepherd of Midian, was the shepherd of the sheep under the old covenant, under the old promise. Now listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 63. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Moses, like a shepherd, led the people of Israel out of captivity. He found that flock in captivity in Egypt and he led them out. He led them to the promised land. He was the shepherd of those people. He was, to put this in, in the terms of the uh, Westminster Confession, Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant. Jesus becomes the mediator of the New Covenant. So when we speak of Jesus as a shepherd, we're actually seeing him as succeeding to an office that was first occupied by Moses. That as Moses shepherded his people, as he led them out of captivity, Jesus shepherds his people and leads them out of captivity as well. But Jesus, as we've already seen, is not just uh, a new mediator. He is a better mediator, the best of all possible mediators. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And that's the significance here of these words. Jesus being acknowledged not just as having a pastoral concern for us, although he does, but Jesus being singled out as one who has become the great shepherd of the sheep, the final mediator, the one who will lead his people out of their captivity. How? 
text goes on, by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. And here, you need to ask yourself, what does this phrase connect back to, this blood of the eternal covenant? And it connects back not to the idea of the great shepherd of the sheep, but to what went before it. The idea that God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So you might read it this way. uh, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. And ask yourself, what does that mean? What is the, the connection between the blood shed and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But here again, in these brief words, the author of Hebrews is, is invoking, or is, you might even say is like haunted by prophecy of the Old Testament, words of the Old Testament. Isaiah 63 that we looked at before finds itself quoted literally in this benediction. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. And oftentimes, New Testament authors, when they're quoting from the Old Testament, are quoting from that Greek translation. And so they wrote in Greek, and the words can actually be exact copies. Exact copies. They're not translating from the Hebrew, in other words. They're actually relying on a translation that's gone before them. And and in Isaiah 63, these words appear directly. Uh, You can look at them side by side and see that they're the same. And now, another passage, another prophecy is being referenced. This idea of the blood of the covenant, this formulation borrows directly from words of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, the pit of death. So this prophecy, this idea of freedom, the end of captivity, the end of death, being brought about through the blood of the covenant is one being picked up from these Old Testament prophets who had prophesied the coming of Christ. But what does it mean to say that God led Jesus out from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenants? How do those ideas connect together? One commentator said that the resurrection of Jesus occurred by virtue of the sprinkling of the blood in the heavenly sanctuary and the establishment of the new covenant. To make sense of that, we have to to remember a few assumptions about the way this works. First of all, you have to remember that Jesus is a high priest. The author of Hebrews says Jesus is our great high priest. And if you can recall back to when we looked at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 25, We looked at what it is, what are the duties that actually make Jesus a high priest? How does he actually fulfill the office of a high priest? And there were two things. One of them, the second thing, was that he continually makes intercession. That's what priests do. They serve in the temple or the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and they make intercession for the people. But the other thing they do, the first thing that's mentioned, is they make sacrifices. And Jesus is the high priest who sacrificed himself on the altar for our sins. Like he made the atoning sacrifice. He was the priest who administered it, but the sacrifice he made was himself. He offered himself up. So it is his blood that is shed on that altar of sacrifice to make atonement for sin. So Jesus is the one administering the sacrifice. And his sacrifice, where is that made? It's made, literally in history, at the cross. It's made on that rock where the cross stands. 
But it's made somewhere else as well, in a higher sense. <laughs> Old Testament, Old Covenant priests made their sacrifices in the temple. Right? They made them at the altar. Jesus' sacrifice, too, was made at the altar, but not the one in the physical temple in earthly Jerusalem. Because we're told by the author of Hebrews that that place is a shadow of a higher place, a higher reality, a higher temple that is heavenly. Jesus' sacrifice, the one that was made once for all, it was made in that place. Not down here, but up there. Jesus is the high priest who serves in that heavenly sanctuary, who offered himself up on that heavenly altar, whose blood was sprinkled to atone for our sins on that heavenly altar. That's where it took place. And that's why, when it took place, it could be done once and for all. There never, again, needs to be any sacrifice made for sin. The blood shed on the altar atones for our sins. But it does something else as well. The author of Hebrews told us that the significance of the shed blood as it relates to the covenant is that it inaugurates this new promise. Remember, every covenant that is made is sealed by the blood of a sacrifice. The old covenant that was made with Abraham was sealed by sacrifice. And the new covenant, the eternal covenant, the one that was promised and finally arrived in Jesus, that too was sealed by sacrificial blood being shed, the blood of Jesus Christ. So by his blood being shed, he becomes the mediator of that new promise. He becomes the Savior. He becomes the shepherd who saves the flock. But he does that by sealing that promise between God and us. That's what it means to say that God led Jesus out from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant, like all resurrection. The end of death, the vanquishing of death, all of it relies upon that seal, that establishment of that eternal covenant, that promise to save. And that's how God has made all of human history into a history of redemption. Through that sacrifice, our stories, our stories of our lives, the way that we, we uh, deal with our sin, whether we do or not, all of it becomes this history of redemption. But God also shapes the story of our lives into a trajectory of reconciliation. As we continue in the benediction, we see that the actual wish that's being directed at us, at the people, is that He equip us, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. So again, if we want to connect that back to the original sentiment, Literally, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. The God of peace who was invoked at the beginning, the reason why is there's a desire that He'll equip us. We need to be equipped so that we can do good, so that we can do His will. William Lane, commenting on this passage, says that everything good has reference to the gifts of God as the prerequisite for godly action. In other words, it's not that God equips us so that we can go do His will independently. Human effort can never be independent of God who molds the life of His servants into conformity to His will. The divine enabling claims men and women for the response of obedience to the revealed will of God. In other words, God doesn't equip us so that we can go out and do it on our own. 
Instead, this equipping is actually something greater, something deeper. When he says, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, that everything good is the enabling good. It is the, the good gifts of the Spirit that make it possible for us to obey, that make it possible for us to do good deeds. So, doing God's will is not about going to work for God. Doing God's will is about God working in you. It's about God working in you. When we think about this, the relationship between uh, God's work and our work, but a common way to think about it is, is this, a common evangelical way. For people who believe in salvation by grace, the way we often think this works is God saves me by grace so that I may be enabled to do whatever is good on my own. Right? God did all the work of my salvation and then the work of my sanctification is up to me. We've talked before about why this isn't the case. That we depend on the Holy Spirit throughout our salvation, not just for our justification, but also for our sanctification. But when we say things like that, what you may hear is, okay, so God does all the work, so I shouldn't do it. If I do things, it's, it's, that's wrong, because now I'm trying to do it. Instead, I should let God do it. That's not what's being said. We're not saying, don't work, let God do it. And we're also not saying, it's time to work now, because this part is up to you. We're saying something more complicated than that. We're saying work, do good, do what is pleasing to God and recognize that all the good that you do, that all the ability that you possess to do it, that too is a gift from God. It's not just that, that you can't do anything to merit your salvation. Like it's not that, that you can't do anything so good that you can bring it to God and say, you should save me because of this. It's that everything you do that is good he gets credit for that. It's him working in you, all of your good, all the good that you do. All of that is the Holy Spirit working in you. So it's not me. No, it is. It is. But it's also him. It is him working in you. And it is you as well. It's not either or. It's said over and over again. It's not either or. It's both and. All of the commands that God gives us to obedience, all of the commandments he gives us to do good, all of those things are real. All of those things are true and we must obey them. And as we do that, we must recognize that we don't gain any merit from having done it. That even that good that we did, even those sacrifices that we made, all of that was God working in us as well. Whatever you've given up, whatever you've suffered, whatever you've endured, you can't take any of that to God and say, look, Look, I deserve this. I deserve to get in because of this. Because that endurance, that strength that you had in the moment when you needed it, that too was a gift from Him. That was Him giving you everything good so that you may do His will and work what is pleasing in His sight. May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. One author in describing this benediction says, uh, the way to think about this is as a prayer wish, which is really awkward English, but it's, I think, a good idea. 
what's being uttered here is a kind of prayer wish for us. Like, I, I, this is my prayer for you. This is my wish. This is my hope. And the hope is not, I hope you will please God. I really hope that as you live this life, you will find a way somehow to please him because he should be pleased by you. Like, that's your duty. You need to please him. You need to make him happy, and I hope you'll be able to do that. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's, he's urging, he's wishing, he's hoping that God will work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And here things get slippery because I said before that the focus of doxology is on God and the focus of benediction is on us, but you can see what's happening here. The focus is shifting. The wish is expressed towards us, but the hope is a hope that he will act in us. That he will do in us, he will sort of make real for us this big cosmic historical thing that he is doing in the world. This great work of salvation he's doing in human history, the hope is that it will become a work God does in our history as well. In the story of our lives, this reconciliation will become true. God made the eternal covenant. He ratified it with the blood of Christ. He broke the reign of death. He fills us with life through the Holy Spirit. And this prayer wish is that he will go on to make our lives lives of praise. Sacrifices of praise, pleasing in the sight of God. That he will make our lives into services of worship, if you will. That's the hope being expressed. It's not that my prayer wish for you is that you'll get everything that you want and all your wishes will be granted. It's like my hope for you is that God will make of you a sacrifice of praise. He will make your life into a thing that is pleasing to Him. It's a different kind of wish. Last thing is this. God turns the sound at the end of forever into a shout of glory. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a long time. To think of of the stretch of time, the eons and eons of time, the ages and ages of time that we project forward into, that, 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 that Christ will be glorified for as long as time exists and then after that forever too. That's a long way into the future that he projects. To whom be glory forever and ever. What it will be like at the end of time? When do you get to the end of forever? I don't even know if that makes sense. But what it will be like is Christ glorified. When we enter into his worship, When we come into his presence, if we're honest, we come looking for some kind of a benefit. We come looking to get something out of this. Maybe it's the forgiveness of sins. Maybe it's just fulfillment of duty. Maybe it's reputation. Like We've got to show up because we didn't show up for a while and it's going to look bad if we don't show up again. Uh, A lot of reasons why we show up. But underneath all of that, searching for a benefit, like what do I get out of the worship of God, is this assumption that, that uh, 
something needs to happen in here that we can feel out there to justify the time we spent. If I have to come here and worship Him, then when I go back out there, I need to be able to take something with me of benefit. You see the idea? I need to be able to, to return out there able to justify the time that I spent in here. That's what I mean when I say that we come looking for a benefit. And sometimes we can be craven in the way that we think of these benefits, but, but usually we're very pious. I don't know about you, but, but no one's ever said to me, yeah, I showed up to church because I didn't want people to think I'm not a good Christian. Never heard anybody say that. Instead, I think we tend to talk about, like, well, I needed to be uh, renewed. Right, Because I'm out in the world, I'm fighting the good fight, and I needed to come here and kind of recharge my batteries so I can then go back out there and hit it even harder, be strengthened. That's, that's what I'm here for. And then I can judge whether or not it paid off by how strengthened I feel when I leave. Did I get the benefit that I came in order to get? And I can measure how good it was. I can measure whether it was worth it based on what I'm able to take with me when I go back out there. I'm not saying there's no benefit to worship, but I do want to push a little bit on, on the ways in which we justify worship to ourselves and justify worship to the world. I think, let's say the, the best possible bad way to think about this, the best possible bad way to think about it is, is that, that we worship God in order to be more highly educated about the contents of the Bible to be more energized and inspired and enthusiastic so that we can now go back out into the world and do some kind of important work on behalf of Jesus. And that the purpose of worship is to sort of energize us and equip us and train us to be able to do those things. And all of that is, I think, good, but it's not what the point of all this is. And it's not what the focus is. Well, what is it? Well, if you want to know what it is, think about the shout at the end. Think about the words at the end. I said before that endings are important. Well, think about the words that conclude what we do here. What is it that you could lift up your voice and shout? And if the thing that you can shout at the end is something like, all right, let's do it. Let's make this happen. Let's get out there and, and, and show them. Let's prove something you may be really charged up, but you're not shouting the right thing. There is a shout at the end. There's a shout at the end of the benediction. Right? This uh, line, to whom be glory forever and ever, Lane, who I quoted earlier, describes this as a doxological shout. This isn't just an utterance. It's not just sort of a, a, a pious set of words to end with the song. I mean, these are words shouted for the glory of Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. That's the final word. That is the final word. That is the focus. Even when the blessing is directed at us, the glory is directed at Him. Those are the final words. The benediction spoken at the end of the book, like the end of the service, gives God the final word. It is the word of God speaking His blessing unto the people of God. God has the final word. The final word is a word of blessing that final shout is a shout of glory 
the shout of glory to Jesus Christ. And that is what it's all about. We come here not to charge ourselves back up, not to understand more profoundly or deeply. We come here not to be inspired. We come to glorify Him. We come to praise Him. We come to have our eyes once again taken off of ourselves and our desire for benefits, whether good or bad, and pointed once again towards Him without regard for us. That our focus would be on His glory, what brings hidden glory that we would see that even the history of salvation, the great work that Jesus did, was a work that He did, not first and foremost for us, but for His glory. So that He would be glorified and worshipped and praised throughout the world as He should be. That is what it's all for. I told you this story before, that, that Lori's main criticism of my sermons... She would listen to my sermons and then, you know, afterwards ask the question, where was Jesus in all of that? Which is a dispiriting sort of question to be asked once you've sort of given it your best and, and it was supposed to be all about Jesus and then your wife, who knows you best, says, no, where was Jesus in all of that? Hmm, I can't figure it out. And so as a result of that good counsel, I've really tried hard to remember that Jesus has got to be in this. And I think you see in the logic of this benediction the same kind of thinking. Like Jesus has to be the end. It has to conclude with Jesus. We have to pray when we pray in Jesus' name because it's all about His glory to Him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the only way this can end. That is the only final word we can speak that brings any kind of conclusion that brings any kind of truth to what we've lived and to where we've worshipped. The shout at the end has to be a shout for Jesus. It has to be a shout for His glory. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.